Lord, indeed, this is the thing that we boast, not in our own works, in our own abilities, but we boast in Jesus Christ. May we be a people that is not ashamed of the gospel in the, in the way that we proclaim your word, in the way that we live out scripture. Lord, help us on a daily basis, remind us of the truth of what we have in Christ. Give us new insights into the cross so that we are able to live in such a way that is pleasing to you, that we become a salt and light in this world. Lord, be with us now as we look at your word. Help us be able to apply it to our lives so that we can give you the glory. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 is going to be the text for us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be, hit, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. In every major product in the world, there is a process, what they call stress testing. The idea is that you intentionally put something through the ringer, try to push this product to its absolute breaking point, in hopes that if it could survive uh, something difficult long enough, that in ordinary use, it would work perfectly fine. That if you could push something to its absolute limits, that in ordinary, normal circumstances, it can be fine. I bring this up because, as you notice when you're reading through this, as I was reading through this text, as you're hearing the word of God read to you, you may be tempted to think to yourself, well, this is clearly just about married people, so if I'm single, I don't need to worry, worry about this. Or for some of you, you might notice that the context in which this passage is speaking of is with believing people that are married to unbelieving spouses. And you may think to yourself, well, if I'm married to a believing spouse, this does not apply to me. I think Peter here is really just putting the worst case scenario forward, the most difficult circumstances, so that in ordinary circumstances, you'll know how to apply God's word. 
This context here is speaking about submission to God's word in every circumstance. Whether it's from chapter 2, verse 13 to 17 about the authorities and government that we need to submit to the government. Or verses 18 to 20 about how people need to submit to their masters. And we see really the example of that in Jesus Christ in verse 21 to 25 of chapter 2. That if Jesus was willing to submit to the will of the Father, then so should all of us. That we need to honor the Lord in the places that we're at. A marriage cannot be successful if, it doesn't, if, it's, if you're focusing on what you want. But here in this passage, there are believers that are married to unbelievers, and that is a very difficult circumstance. It isn't to say that people that are married to unbelievers can't be happy or even find fulfillment, but there's always going to be this one huge component of the marriage that's missing and lacking, and that is that the spouse has not come to saving faith. But yet, despite all of those circumstances, there is a word from Peter for the believers in this circumstance to give them encouragement to, in hopes to win them to Christ. This book, First Peter, is written by Peter to all the believers that are scattered throughout all of Asia Minor. And they are in disarray and in distress because the Romans at the time thought that the Christians were or a group of individuals that were a threat to the Roman colony, so they spread them out all over, and that with the hopes that this will make them weaker in terms of their influence because they're scattered all over. And Peter's trying to encourage them that you may feel like a sojourner now because you don't belong there. You may feel like an alien to the culture that you're in, but the reality is that all of us are sojourners and aliens because of our faith in Jesus Christ. The last several weeks, I've been going through my preaching project about this question, why does San Francisco need San Francisco Bible Church? And throughout the series, I try to answer that question with a simple answer, which is we want to win people to Jesus Christ. Why did God allow this church to be here for about almost 60 years and hopefully longer is because we want to win people to Jesus Christ. And for our lesson this morning, it's about how do we win people to Christ that are in our own homes. Because for us as believers, we understand that a sojourner is not just someone that is outside these walls. A sojourner could be inside your own home. And it is very tempting for us to think as long as we're home in our earthly homes, that it must mean that we can kick back and relax. And we forget that the reason why God has placed us there, even with an unbelieving spouse, is to win them to saving faith. So for this morning, three areas of submission that will make us faithful sojourners in our earthly home. Three areas of submission that will make us faithful sojourners in our earthly home. The first is this, is the evangelism in submission. There's evangelism in your submission. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, in the same way, he's pointing back to how Jesus Christ, how he was willing to submit to the Father. And whether you're under authority of government or other, or your worldly masters, you always look to Jesus Christ as the example. And Peter's pointing back to that, that as saints, people who have just come to saving faith, they're supposed to model Christ-likeness in the way they submit ultimately to the Lord, but also in the way that they submit to their husbands. 
Jesus suffered and acted this way, and likewise, wives must look like Jesus as well. Again, this message is not strictly for just the ladies here or people that are wives, but it's for the men as well because it's supposed to show you men what the boundaries are supposed to be. That, man, that the men here uh, need to know the roles and they can know it by studying the, both the husband and the wife. And for also for you single people to understand the expectation that you have if you want to be a husband one day. It says here that wives be submissive to your own husband. This word submissive is the same word that's been used throughout this book. It's a military term. It's to be in subordinate to someone, to subject yourself to a ruler that is above you. And Peter here is telling the wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Wives don't need to submit to any other husband in the world. They just need to submit to their own. And it says here that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, this means that this is a husband that have not given their life to the Lord. And it could be in multiple reasons why that is. It can be that uh, the wife and the husband are both unbelievers, and eventually the wife gets saved, and now she's still married to him. The husband agrees to stay, and that's her ministry to her unbelieving spouse. Or it could be that they were both married, and they both professed Jesus Christ as Lord, but the husband ended up denying the faith and walking away, but still agrees to stay and live with the, with the believing wife. Whatever the circumstances may be, Peter's saying that this husband is disobedient to the word. The husband doesn't want to have anything to do with Christianity, but he's still willing to stay with the wife. And being married to a believing husband is already difficult, and it's doubly so for the unbelieving husband who has nothing to do who wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And it's possible that even in our church, there are ladies and wives that are going through this right now. And I think Peter's writing this for, so that believers can be empathetic to the, to the saints that are here, that are in this circumstance. That they need to pray for them regularly, pray for their husband by name, and pray that the wife would be a faithful testimony to their husbands. And if this is you, you need to submit to your husband whether or not they are a believer. Wives need to submit to the husband as they are continually trusting in the Lord. Notice it said here that they may be one without a word. And this is the hope, that this is the purpose. They hope that as they are faithful to the Lord in every area of their life, that they would be able to win their spouse to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, it says this, But to the rest I say, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbeliever, unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under any bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. See, the goal of being a faithful soldier in the home is that you want to win your unbelieving spouse to the Lord. This is what we call missionary, missionary marriages, that in your life, the only the people that you might be only ministering to will be the closest to you 
and as your family. And some of you may not have the, the courage or, the equipped or just mentally equipped to go and share the gospel with, with strangers out there. And that's, that, that's okay. You need to grow in those areas. But with your family, you're familiar with them. And your hope is that because you love them and you love Christ, you want them to love Jesus the way that you love Jesus. Some of us are the only people that we're going to be ministered to. The, the core group of people is going to be our family. And that's perfectly fine. The Lord might have placed you there with that purpose of trying to win them to Christ. Notice I said, by the behavior of their wives. It speaks of the conduct of the believing spouse can be a means by which the unbelieving spouse can come to saving faith. Now what's interesting is that Peter isn't saying that you need to go and preach to them or to teach them. It's not bargaining with them or complaining or, or trying to nag them into the kingdom of God. Rather, the unbelieving spouse, they, they look at the wife's conduct, they look at how she lives out the gospel, and that makes them want to know about Christ. This is the gospel being displayed in your own home. Your love, your respect, your, commit, <coughs> excuse me, your commitment and submission to your husband is not contingent on your husband's maturity or your husband's spiritual beliefs. It's possible for a wife to win their husband without saying a word. You embody the gospel with your behavior. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't share the gospel if the opportunity presents itself. It's later on in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is, assumes that you at one point did share the gospel, and now you need to prove to the unbeliever through your life that you actually believe in Christianity. If you share the gospel once already, they have already heard it. Now they need to see it for themselves. You can evangelize to them, but they, can't, they won't take you seriously if you don't live out the gospel. You want to pray for those opportunities. Pray that God will give you those moments to share the gospel with them. But pray that in every moment of your life that you would faithfully represent Christ in the way that you live. It was in verse 2. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. This word chaste here is the idea of purity. And respect here is, is referring to only towards your own husband. That, you, that in the way that you live, you conduct yourself with purity and, and respectable. Your life is different because of what you believe. You need to show them how real Jesus Christ to you is in order to show them that Jesus Christ is indeed real. As the unbelieving husband sees this, they would want to know more about Jesus Christ. On the flip side, if you come to church and you learn about Jesus Christ, you have all of these, all this Bible knowledge, and your husband sees you go to church or go to Bible study, but you come back, disrespectful, unloving, and always argumentative, it would, be, it would turn their interest away from Christ. Even non-believers understand that Christians have some level of outward moral standards. And if you fail to live in that way, it will turn them away from Christ. And what about if my, hus- if my unbelieving husband treats me poorly? What if they insult me or they demean my personhood? Am I supposed to just let this person walk all over me? And Peter, in this 
book is saying that this is actually the best opportunity to showcase Christ. It's the times when you are being unfairly treated. This is the opportunity where you can display Jesus Christ before them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we went over this last week. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this is where if your spouse maybe have say something that's not unkind or maybe make un, unwise decisions and it impacts your life in a negative way, the best thing that you could do in this, this moment is to suffer in the name of Christ. You keep entrusting yourself to the Lord who judges righteously. Now, I know some of you guys are probably thinking, well, what about husbands that physically abuse me? Well, this is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking about a husband that fails to do what they need to do in terms of this is a a husband that fails to, to uphold their responsibility as a husband to protect and cherish them. But you understand that when a husband makes fun of you, they can't be arrested for it. But if a husband commits a crime which is abusing you, they actually can get arrested for it. That's where in those situations you need to go and tell the other authorities in your life, whether that is the government or police, to let them know that this is happening. And because the role of the husband is to protect his wife. And if he fails to do his job, he becomes a threat. And when he becomes a threat to his wife, the wife has every right to go and tell the authorities because it is a crime what this person is doing. And for us as a church, if we know that this is happening, what our responsibility is to the sister is to love and care for them, find practical ways to protect her. Because the, the, church, the scripture describes how when one member of the body hurts, all of us hurt. And we need to come alongside this dear saint and minister to them. So for some, it may be to just call the authorities on behalf of this lady, or, or some of us need to go and evangelize to the husband ourselves to try to call him to repentance. At minimum, the church needs to take this lady to a safe location. But you notice here that Peter's saying, observe your chaste behavior. And it's intentional here because wives that are believers, they don't want to make their husband have any doubt of their loyalty and trust. Don't make the unbelieving spouse feel insecure whenever you go to church and you come back to church. What that looks like is if you learn something great from church, and you know it's perfectly fine to go and share that with your unbelieving husband, but don't go back to your unbelieving husband and tell them how great this person, this person, this man in the church is, or how you wish that this, that you would be just like this other guy in the church, because that sows seeds of distrust and insecurity. And the unbelieving spouse should never doubt your commitment, your love, and your loyalty to him. If the goal is to be a good witness to your unbelieving spouse. You need to have a pure, you need to be chaste in all your conduct. And we as a church should encourage that within the church body. We should encourage each other to guard our purities, to be above reproach, and guard the reputation not just of the individual or collectively as a church, but we want to guard the reputation of Christ. We should all try to help each other be above reproach. We have this 
term in our modern day, uh, or at least in, Christ, in Christianity, called the Billy Graham rule. And what that is, is that when, when Billy Graham used to travel and do his crusade, he would always have another person with him so that if he's talking with another person, particularly people of the opposite gender, that there is accountability, that there's always someone there to, to watch them. And that's what we need to be as a church, that we want to keep each other above reproach, especially those that are believers that have an unbelieving spouse. Notice in verse 3, it said, Your dormant must not be merely external. Simply put, God does not care about what you look like on the outside. This does not impress the Lord. He cares more about what's going on in your own soul than what you put on on the outside. Your makeup may make other people look at you fondly, but God can see through all of the makeup and he can look into your soul. God doesn't care about external beauty. Notice that here's a braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Now, before you get startled, I know some of you guys have braided your hair and you're wearing gold jewelry and you're wearing dresses. I'm not saying panic. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying that you need to understand what's going on at the time before you make some wardrobe choices. Because back then, they didn't have bank accounts the way that we do today. Oftentimes, people will buy different assets, and they'll wear their wealth before other people. They'll buy nice clothing. They'll even put gold in their hair with the intent to basically keep all their wealth on them. And when they do that, they're drawing attention to themselves and their own wealth. And Peter here is talking to a lady that loves to display their wealth. And these ladies back then, would not only would they just put gold on their hair, but they'll even put wigs so, so they could put more gold on their hair. And this is just pride, and God doesn't see that as beautiful. The world uh, loves to look at the external, but God looks at the internal. That, that, that would be like in our modern day, if you, put, if you stick like an iPad on your head, well, and the number on the top being how much money is in your bank account. Some of you may not have that much, but you know, you'll still put it there just as a way to, to just show off. It's a prideful thing to try to display this, and Peter is addressing those individuals that when you adorn yourself, ladies, that it should not be merely external. Peter is saying that God is not pleased when you try to show yourself off. Again, this doesn't have anything to do necessarily with, with braiding your hair or jewelry or even putting on dresses. These things are not the main idea. The main thing is that God cares about your internal. And for some, they might think wearing too little, and that's, we call that immodesty, or they wear too much, and that's called a false modesty. Both of them are pride. You want to draw attention to yourself. Whether it's a person wearing not as much as try to get people to lust after them, or it's a person wearing too much so they could think, oh, I, look how modest I am. Look how godly I am. Look at all this clothes I am wearing. Both are bad because it's centered around you as opposed to drawing your attention to God. And it's important to note that the Bible, or especially God himself, doesn't have anything against people that are beautiful. When you look at Ruth, she was an attractive person. It says that she was beautiful on the outside. She had to make herself good so that she could win Boaz. When you think about Sarah, which we'll look at a little bit, she was known for her beauty. Esther as well. Esther in the Old Testament is because of her looks is what God used to be able to save the Jewish people. So God doesn't have anything against beauty, but rather he cares more about internal beauty. The problem is if you occupy your mind with just external things as opposed to what's internal. 
Hey, you say you present yourself, the way that you present yourself, does it draw people to you or does it draw people to the Lord? This word adornment is, the word, is where we get the word for, is cosmos is where we get the word for uh, cosmetics, is putting something in order. This is the only type of appearance that the world believes and cares about, but this is not the thing that God cherishes the most. And Peter used this word intentionally, and your obsession or your preoccupation of your life should not be about what you look like, but how you are on the inside. Now, before you think, fellas, this is only something that ladies need to work on, understand that guys, you as well, need to work on modesty. But guys, modesty might be different. Guys might want to show off how, how buff they are, how much they go to the gym, or they might show off their wealth and the things that they wear or the things that they buy. But understand that God does, is not impressed with those things either. First Samuel verse chapter 16, this is a scene where, where Samuel was trying to find a representative of God and he went to Jesse, and he had all of these kids, all these muscular buff dudes, and God said, not them, not them, not them, not this guy, not that guy. And he's like, there's one left. And the person that they chose was David, which is a little sheep boy. He watches over the animals, and he was red, little curly hair, and had a little baby face. That was the one that God wanted, not because of his looks, but because he had a, his heart was after the Lord. David didn't look the part but God saw his heart that he, was, that he is devoted to him. But then what is true beauty? Look at verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. Does God care about beauty? He does, just not external beauty. When I watch these old Disney cartoons, it's really fascinating and, and hypocritical when, they, when all the princes are talking about. It's all about the inside. It's all about who you are on the inside. But yet, when you look at the way these characters are drawn, they're like perfectly symmetrical. They have perfect skin. They're always wearing the right clothing. And they tell kids at home they're not, that does not look like that, that it's all about their inside. And clearly, when you look at this as a parent, like, okay, clearly you don't even believe the message that you're trying to preach. You don't really care. Now, if all the princes look like Quasimodo, then yeah, okay, I totally believe you. Yeah, it's all about the inside because all of you look ugly. But that's not the case with these cartoons because they don't really care about what's going on on the inside. But God truly does care about your internal character regardless of how you look on the outside. Your character will not be noticed by those around you. In the way that you look, that's, that's very immediate. People can see what you look like. But your character, it takes time, but God sees it all the time. Godliness always starts within, from within, and God wants you to improve on your soul. Ladies, do you spend more time looking in the mirror, or do you spend more time looking at the mirror of God's Word? Do you spend more time thinking about your wardrobe than you do about worship? No amount of makeup can make up for a character defect. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22, Solomon's trying to give his son wisdom about what life, and one of the things he says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22 is this, as the ring of gold is, a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And this isn't to say that, this is to say that no matter how valuable jewelry is, 
if the thing itself is ugly, you can't make it beautiful just because you put something nice on it. Because it says, so is beautiful who lacks discretion. It means that someone who, if a woman doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong, no matter how much clothes you put on this woman, no matter how nicely she puts on her makeup or her outfits or her jewelry, she is considered ugly, just like how you put a ring, a gold ring on a pig. It's still not good to look at. But what God cares about is your character. This is here with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. True beauty is not external, but is internal. This is what Proverbs 31 talks about, how charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but the lady that fears the Lord, she is the one that needs to be praised. Godly example will not fade away. External beauty changes all the time. Whether it's you need to look this weight and this big or this small, this tight, whatever it may be, it changes with the times. And it takes a tremendous amount of self-control to not to draw attention to yourself, but rather to draw your attention to the Lord. Our Kent Hughes' wife has this quote in terms of what to wear is something modest or immodest. And he has, she has this quote that says, if you can see up it, down it, or through it, then toss it. If you can see up it, down and through it, and in, in any of those angles where you can see the person's skin, then toss it. Now again, I'm not going to be the one judging here what you wear, but it's just you have to think about the way that you dress. Why do you wear the things that you wear? Why are you drawn to certain clothing, and why do you wear your clothes a certain way? Do you focus that because you want to draw attention to yourself, or is it because you actually want to draw attention to the Lord? Because if you focus on your character, this is what is precious in the sight of God. Again, this is a chief motive here. The motive, yes, you want to win your unbelieving spouse if you're married to an unbeliever, but the reason why you want to work on these qualities is because it's precious in the sight of the Lord. You can be faithful to your husband and do all of these things, but yet he may not notice or even be aware of the things that you do for him. But God sees it. You first and foremost want to please the Lord, and in doing so, you hope that your spouse will come to saving faith. That's your mission field and your ministry for you in your home. And that may be your primary mission field. That's where God has placed you and that is where God wants you to be, to be Christ-like in your own home. And the goal of this section is for wives to focus on their characters so that they could win their unbelieving husband without even needing to say a word. What matters more than what you wear or even what you say is that you put on Christ-likeness. It is easier to look beautiful than actually to be beautiful in the eyes of God. So not only there's the evangelism in submission, but we also need to look at the example of submission. Not only do we need to look at the evangelism in submission, but also the examples of submission. Look at verse 5. For in this way... In former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. The godly wives at that time, they, and it's fascinating that Peter's using Old Testament reference here to speaking of Sarah, but he's saying that back then, the former times, and not even, even now, what, what, what they need, what makes them useful in the, in the hands of God is that they adorn themselves with submissiveness that they adorn themselves with submission. Husbands will make mistakes, and wives are still called to submit to them. 
It was in verse 6, but just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, I know some of you might look at verse 6 and be offended by it. Why would she call him Lord? That's so demeaning. Well, back then in that culture, calling someone Lord, especially wife to a husband, is almost like saying sir or or, or babe or love. There's this endearing um, word, quality to the things that she's saying. She's, she looks up to Abraham because she respects him. In fact, the only time in the old, entire Old Testament recorded where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, Abraham wasn't even around. This was Genesis 18 when Abraham was talking to the angel of the Lord about, about this promise that you're going to have a son one day, and, and Sarah overhears the intent, and she kind of laughs to herself, and she says, Lord, is this really going to happen? And then the angel of the Lord confronts her on it. But it shows you that even when, he, when Abraham is not around, she has this reverential respect for him. It shows her integrity in respecting her husband. And Peter chose her as a model of submission because God placed her in a situation where Abraham was himself is not necessarily the brightest person. Right? Abraham had made dumb choices. And if Sarah can go through all the things that Abraham brought her through and was still willing to submit to him, then you and I, or really the wives here, can submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. It says here that as you have become her children, this idea that if you call yourself a follower of God, then you, and if you are a faithful wife, you're just like from the line of faith. And this idea is picked up by Paul in Galatians, where there was Sarah and Hagar, and in, in that book in Galatians, it says that how those that are believers, they're in the line of faith, which is the line of Sarah, and those who are works your way in salvation in the line of Hagar. And he uses that as an illustration, as salvation by faith versus salvation by work. In the same way here, if you call yourself a follower of God, if you follow the Lord, then you're in the same line as Sarah. But what did Peter mean when he said, if you do what is right without frightening by any fear? And what does Sarah, if you just read her life, what does she have to be afraid of? Well, all of Abraham's dumb choices. It's easy to say that you're willing to submit unto the Lord in the things of life when things are easy. But it's hard to submit unto the Lord if your husband makes poor decisions that you still need to submit to them. And the point here is not that you, you don't, tr- is, is that you trust your husband. Yes, you do to a certain extent, but you trust the Lord more than your husband's. Sarah wasn't frightened, but she kept entrusting herself to the Lord. And just think about what it's like if you were in Sarah's position. If you were in Sarah's position, and one day Abraham just shows up and says, okay, honey, we... I, got, I heard this voice from the sky that said that he's the one true God and that we need to go out into the wilderness, pack everything, and then the Lord's going to make us a, a great nation through us as elderly people. And by the way, this moon God that you've been worshiping, that we've been worshiping, that's a false God. We've got to go now. And Sarah submitted to that. And you know, even so for some uh, down the line, when, when, when these two kings looked at Sarah in different, in different situations, the same mistake was uh, applied here where, where these kings looked at Sarah and they thought that it was beautiful and they wanted to be with her. And Abraham, instead of defending her, saying, this is my wife, she said, oh, no, this is my sister. And he said that because he was a coward. And you can just imagine Sarah's thinking, like, what did you just say? You know what this means now? And she still submitted to him. And God had to intervene to protect Sarah. Or even later on, when 
Isaac was born. And Abraham tells Sarah, Sarah, I'm going to take Isaac for a walk. Uh, We're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. I'll be back in a few hours. And Sarah goes, oh, okay, babe, do you want me to give you some sheep? And Abraham goes, oh, don't worry. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. See you later. And Sarah probably was like, what did you just say? Whether it was Abraham's foolish decision or God commanding Abraham to do something, Sarah did not know which was which. But the only thing that she did know is that she needs to trust in Yahweh. She needs to be faithful to the Lord. And this is an example for the wives here. And she's worth emulating. This is how you honor the Lord being in a difficult marriage, is that you trust the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't give insight or input into the things of life, but you understand that even for a non-believer, that they have to give an account to the Lord on how they took care of you. And your responsibility to your husband and really unto the Lord is that you submit to your husband. You have to give an account to how you submitted to the Lord in this context. Again, Sarah showed a tremendous amount of trust in God more than her husband, and that's where some of you wives need to do as well. You need to learn to submit unto the Lord and trusting that the Lord is ultimately going to put everything in your place for your good and for his glory. The world is going to have a different standard of what beauty is, and it doesn't last. But then what God cares about is your internal character. And one of the things that will make you an example of Christ to your unbelieving spouse is that he gives us these worldly examples of Sarah. So Sarah, she was faithful to the Lord in the way that she submitted to Abraham. Sarah is a great example to follow. And I know for you, some of you wives, it is a struggle because you may think that no one understands what you're going through. You go to the church, you show up here, you see families that, are, that, that seem to be uh, all put together. They seem to have family devotion. That's something that you want. And for the time being, you may not have that. And maybe for this lifetime, you, you might not have it. But understand that the Lord is watching you. He sees your conduct and in He's just encouraging you to continue to have your hope in him and not on your husband or even the things of the world. Because even your family, they will fail you. They're not designed to give you lasting satisfaction and happiness. But you are a child of God. You need to find your hope in him. Not only do we find evangelism and submission, or example in submission, but lastly, the equality of submission. The equality of submission. Verse 7. Now, Peter is speaking to husband here who are also in similar circumstances. Notice it said, your husbands, you husbands, in the same way. So it points back to the fact that some of these husbands are also married, unbelieving wives, and they are to submit unto the Lord as well. Just like how Christ submitted to the will of the Father, husbands need to submit to the Lord as well. Whether it is to the government, whether it is to poor masters, In every realm, Christians are exemplified in their humbleness and their submissiveness to the Lord. And husbands need to submit to Christ in the way that they live. It's Again, this whole context is about submission. And whether it's government, masters, wives to husbands, and now husbands to wife. Husbands need to submit to their wives. Now, I I didn't mess up there. I, I did say husbands submit to their wives. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, Be subject to one another in the fear of God. This is right before the passage about Christ and the church, and both husbands and wives need to submit to each other. 
Now, I know you're probably thinking, this sounds very contradictory. You're telling us that wives need to submit to their husbands, but yet at the same time you're saying wives, husbands need to submit to wives. In what way? Well, husbands need to submit to the wives in a very particular way, and that is he needs to submit to her needs. He must learn to understand her. He needs to find out what, what makes her tick. Husbands need to learn to understand, find out her needs, and submit to her needs. You, you see the needs that your wife goes through, and you try your best to meet those needs. Because Ephesians chapter 5, later on, it talks about how the husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his own loves his wife. Meaning that a person will not mistreat themselves, so then why would they mistreat their wife? Because no one could claim that they love themselves, yet they hate their wife. Husbands are willing to give up their own body for the sake of their own wife. Being a leader here does not mean everything is about you. But what does that look like practically in your life? It would be like if you had a rough day at work, your master was a terrible master, you go home and you see your wife and the kids, and your wife is exhausted, and all she asks is if she can have just an hour away from the kids. And you seeing that are willing to give up that hour of time instead of just kicking back and relaxing, that you're willing to do that because you love your wife. You take the kids, you let your wife take a break. Or maybe your money is tight, and you've been saving up uh, just a little bit here and there for this one thing that you wanted to buy, and the thing that you buy is finally on sale, then right away before you get to put in your credit card information, your wife comes up and tells you there's something that she wants to buy. And money is tight, so you can only buy, only one of you can get something but yet, out of way of serving her, you're willing to let her purchase whatever that is. Or the game is on. It's the whatever football, basketball game is on. And you really want to watch this game, and your wife asks you to do the dishes. Now, the, hum- the, the right thing to do is not to, like, okay, let's, let's do this dishes later, but to do it right away. You humbly do it because this is what Christ would have done. You see the needs of your spouse. You learn eventually you, uh, you, it's, and it takes work. And again, I'm not saying this as someone that's perfected this. I am saying this as someone that needs to work on this as well. And all of us as husbands need to work on this. We need to exemplify Christ-like humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And husbands, when you look at your wife, you want to understand her needs and meet those needs. Again, for you single people, this is not something that you learn the moment you put a ring on your finger. It's not natural to just think, okay, I'm going to automatically be a humble servant the moment I become a a husband. That's not how it works. You need to cultivate that in your life now as a single person so that when you are married, that this is just a natural part of you, that you're willing to lay down your life for your spouse. You must be willing to expend yourself for the betterment of others. Notice here it says live with. This is ongoing, that you live with them. This is someone that is not necessarily just in the physical space, but that you, can, that you, that you live among them, that you know them, that you, that you spend time with your wife. To be a good husband, you need, you need to be part of the family life. If, you pattern, if, you, if it's a pattern of your life to, be, to try to be away from the home, that there's a problem with, your, with, with where you are spiritually. As husbands, we know that. If we understand our wives are a gift from the Lord, if we understand our wives are, are, are given to us by God as a helper for us, that we want to live with them. 
in our culture, there's always this idea of, of separation for a certain amount of time so that they can work on themselves, so they can discover themselves. And I'm not saying that you can't have time away just to cool off, but the general attitude that you have is that you want to live with your wife. Interesting, living with your wife is easy. It's the second part that's actually harder. It's living with your wife in an understanding way. This word understanding modifies the word living. It's, it's you expend yourself to, to know your spouse. Husbands and wives are not naturally going to know everything about one another, and it takes work. It takes time to learn and to understand your wife's behavior, your, her thoughts, her, her reaction to things. And as husbands, we need to try our best to meet those needs, to meet her physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. It doesn't come naturally. Sin comes naturally for us. And which means that for all of us, if you're married, sin is, you're already at a disadvantage because of your sin. Sin is going to wreck your marriage, but by God's grace, you can overcome those situations. God's grace will give you the ability to, to love your wife and to live with her in an understanding way. You need to consider her by communicating. Think about her needs. Talk it out. I know it is hard because we're all sinners, and it's a task worth doing because God's glory and honor is at stake. And in this particular context here, he's speaking to husbands with unbelieving spouses. You want to win them over. This is what you need to do. You need to live with them in an understanding way. You want to do this to win them to Christ. Notice this here is that as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Now, I know this can be offensive. For sure to the world, this is offensive. And it may even be offensive to people in the church. Because what does weaker here mean? Well, it doesn't mean to say that she isn't physically strong, because I'm sure some of the wives here can bench more than you husbands. But it says weaker. It implies that the husband himself is also weak. That, that there is something about both of the husband and wife that are weak. But there are areas in which the wife is just particularly weaker than the husband. Both husband and wife needs grace. It's, it's just in the marriage, the wife has particular needs. And, it's, and it requires husbands to have more care and dignity and respect. This word weaker here is, is speaking, is this word, it literally means weaker vessel. And it's not, speaking of, it's not speaking of value, but rather speaking of function. Think of it as a, a ballpoint pen versus a fountain pen. A ballpoint, which one is more valuable? Well, it depends on the circumstance. A ballpoint pen is really good for writing quick notes. If you need something, you, have to, you could just pull it out and just write it. But a fountain pen is like a, a really desk-based kind of leisure. You have to open the pen, you have to screw it out. Put a, uh, dip the pen in the ink, draw the ink out, and then you write things out, and it has to be in a particular angle. Those things are good for like signing marriage certificates or writing a letter. So they're both valuable, but you know, a fountain pen, you drop it, and it's, it shatters. Or you think about a Tupperware or, or fine china. Your Tupperware is good in its appropriate context. It's not which one's more valuable, it's that there's different functions. If you use a Tupperware, you wouldn't... I know some of you, if you invite the pastors over... I mean, you could do this for me, maybe not to Pastor Henry, but you know, if, you, if, I, if I come over, you can bring your Tupperware, that's totally fine. But when Pastor Henry comes, you want to give him double honor so you bring out the, the nice plates, uh, you know, the goblets and everything, all the nice uh, plates, because you want to show honor to him. And that's the particular use for fine china. But, a tub, but you wouldn't use those fine china in picnic. You wouldn't put it on your backpack and then walk several miles on a hike and then take those things out. That's an inappropriate time to use that. But rather, Tupperware is more appropriate in those circumstances. So again, it's not so much about the value because they're both useful, it's just in different circumstances. In this way, in case, men are the tub of wear and women are the fine china. 
both are valuable, but they have different functions in different circumstances. And husbands need to learn to be strong when, in, in areas where the, when the wife is weak. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Husbands, you need to be willing to be strong in moments when your wife is weak. It's in those moments you show respect and honor to her. That's what those verses are, and show her honor. And this means you show her with dignity, with respect. It's very countercultural in our day to think this way. Because in our day and age, women are not really honored. They'll say, yeah, we're pro-women and feminism, all of that. But in the way that they treat women, the way they even think about women, it goes against anything that they claim to be true. Contrary to the culture, it's not condescending to show your wife honor, to show that they matter and you're willing to sacrifice for her. We used to have this word, it's called chivalry. And the idea is that you're willing to lay down your life for this other person, that you treat them better than they deserve because God has given women to man as a helper. And this should be our way to show dignity and honor that the husbands, this, this is what husbands show to their wives. It's not necessarily about showing strength, like physical strength, but by showing honor. Now, the world is going to look at marriages differently. And in fact, they're going to look at the church and think, why are these men treating these women in this way? We know that we don't care about what the culture has to say. We want to honor our wives because that's what Scripture tells us. And especially back then, in that society, when Peter was writing it, women were not treated with any dignity or respect. So for the believers in the church at the time as sojourners and aliens, as they show respect to their own wives, it was a startle contrast to the way that the world treated their own wife. And it says here, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Now different commentaries, actually a lot of commentaries, differ in what this means. And I think based on this context, it's not speaking of the fact that you guys are fellow heirs of, like meaning you guys are all the brothers and sisters in the faith going to heaven, but I think here, like, to be a fellow heir means that you inherit something from someone else, like God gave you marriage. And marriage is a grace of life. You inherit, like, even non-believers get to experience the joys and the fulfillment that's found in marriage. In Matthew chapter 5, God said that he poured rain on the righteous and the wicked. And marriage is an institution by God for the flourishing and the joyfulness and the companion of mankind. So when there's one man and one woman together, even non-believers get to experience the joys of it. And here, husbands, even though they're married to a non-believer, it is a gift of God. It is a grace to them. Your vows exist even if you weren't a believer. When you make a vow, you still need to honor it before the Lord. It says here that, that so that your prayers will not be hindered, what does that mean? And, think, and again, speaking of this context of trying to win your spouse to Christ, it'd be like someone coming to church and telling people, hey, can you please pray for my wife? I want her to come to saving faith. And then you go home and you treat your wife poorly. That's a hindrance to your own prayer request. You claim that you want your wife to be a believer, and yet you go home and you mistreat them as if you didn't learn anything from God's word. And I know some of you guys are probably wondering, well, how can I lead her if she isn't a believer? I can't impose biblical ethics on a non-believer. And that is true. 
But what is the reality is that you have to be wise and winsome in the way that you go about this. It's not to say, hey, the Bible, I just learned this from church today, that you need to submit to me. Rather, you demonstrate Christ-likeness, and you always have her interest in mind. You always think about what's best for her. You always lead by example to the point where she has no, she doesn't doubt when you, when you do something, when you act, and when you think about it, when you make a decision, she doesn't second-guess your decision because she knows that you actually do love her. You think about her. I mean, just imagine if, if, if the husband goes into some How to Be a hus- Better Husband conference and he comes back and he actually does all these things, the wife will let her go the following year. And you as husband, if you have unbelieving wives, you need to see every week as that. Every time you go to Bible study, every time you go to church, it should be like a conference for you to be equipped to know how to be like Christ and how to be a better husband to your wife. And in doing so, if you're living according to Scripture, your prayers will not be hindered. Now again, going back to even uh, verse 1, it says that they may be won over without a word. Again, it's the possibility. But if you love your spouse, wouldn't you want to do all that you can to win them to Christ? Wouldn't it be great for you to just put off the anger, the, the short temper, the, 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 the inappropriate words? You put all of those things out and you keep putting on Christ so that you can show them Jesus Christ. And this is your mission field. For some of you, when you're in a context where your spouse is not a believer, or even if your kids are not believers, you have to see that this, as a sojourner, this is the task that God has given you. This is the place where you will represent him. Because the goal is to be a catalyst for the gospel. And sojourners, you and I must remember that this is our mission field. And that when we live according to God's word, and when we do all things for his glory, we are able to win our spouse, our kids, without even you saying a word. And I hope that is that for all of us, that we have this eternal mindset that we're praying for non-believing family members, and we live in such a way that they will come to saving faith, that as close as we are as family, there is a closer, there's even an even closer relationship, and that is when they are right with the Lord, then we're all part of the family of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, I do pray for all of us who have, not, who have unbelieving family members, and that we want to live in a way with chaste and respectful behavior, that we don't care about externals, but, what's go- but rather focus on Christ-like character. Our hope is that people, that when they look at us, they see Christ, and that will draw them to you. And I pray for the brothers and sisters who are married to unbelievers, that you give them the grace to be able to honor you in their respective marriages, whether it means to submit to their husbands or to live with their wives in an understanding way, whatever it may be, Lord, that you give them grace and the, and the opportunity to win their family members without even needing to say a word. Be with us this day. Give us more opportunities this week to be a faithful sojourner in your eyes. In your son's name I pray. Amen.